Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. TuneIn is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. The clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You set my world on fire. Even podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. This is the only place to listen to Chicago's hometown call of Bulls playoff, playoff basketball. basketball. Sports Radio 670, the score, and the Odyssey app. Ball game over. Bulls win. Bulls win. Bulls win. Live from the Hyundai Studios, presented to you by your local Hyundai dealers. We are WSCR and HD Chicago. WBMX HD2 Chicago. Odyssey Station. The score! On the ground, up the middle, off the glove of Baez. And the Sox once again will take the lead in the first inning. It is 2-0. Eloy Jimenez, two-run single yesterday. And, uh, man, he looks good. He looks good. He looks healthy. looks spry. looks good at the plate. That's a good lineup. Tim Anderson will be back today. We'll see how long it is for Yohan Moncada. That White Sox offense is good. Very, very, very good. The concerns are on the starting pitching side for the most part. Let's talk about some of that. Some other impressions from the first couple of games with my favorite White Sox follow, favorite White Sox writer. He is James Fegan. From The Athletic, who joins us right now on the Circa Resort and Casino Hotline. Circa Resort and Casino in Las Vegas, home of the world's largest sports book. Good morning, James. How are you? Well, I just heard the promo for Bulls playoff broadcast coming in, so now I'm a little sad again. (laughs) But otherwise, I'm doing all right. Oh, so you think going out with an ugly whimper where they get blown out in the first quarter the other night and then everybody sitting tonight for the finale, you think that's not a good way to do it? I wonder if you're drawing a parallel to our current topic about going out with an ugly whimper. But, yeah, yeah, it doesn't seem great. No, it does not seem great. Um, but here we are in the midst of baseball season already. What do we expect out of Michael Kopech today um, now that he had his last spring start be the two interrupted innings? What, what's, what's, the, what's the optimal dream for Kopech if you're Tony La Russa today? I imagine the optimal dream is that he cruises enough that you let him out there for five. Um, you know, he was supposed to get to the point where in his last spring outing where you could conceivably see him building up for to four or five. Um, he, was, he got through three, um, but obviously he needed to be pulled from the second to, to get even that much. And even he was saying afterwards that not only did he not get stretched out enough, but the, like the execution, the sharpness of his breaking balls um, was not where he wanted to be. Um, so you, you, are not expecting to see the full package right now just because he hasn't kind of shown you that level of sharpness both in spring and you wouldn't really expect him to be built up to uh, where he would be. He, he was a guy who got kind of stronger, even if the results weren't there, like the velocity and the stuff um, were, were stronger over the course of the season. It was really kind of commanded that failed him at times in August last year. So I, I wouldn't expect to see 
100 miles an hour with 90 mile hour sliders today, uh, but you want to see a step towards that. And since he was working on it all week to kind of sync up and, and be the type of guy uh, we've seen in the past. And then do we have an idea on what the piggyback would be or what the bullpen follow would be? Uh, and Ronaldo is going to stay out there in the bullpen. Keuchel's going to pitch on Wednesday. I mean, certainly the most likely candidate as far as, like, multiple innings is Tanner Banks. I think they could probably go back to Graveman for a little bit more extended, uh, certainly if they're in a position to protect the lead. Um, but if we're worried about somebody covering, like, three, four innings because things don't go as well as you want, I, I think Banks being held back is the most likely candidate. Um, but I, don't, I think Ronaldo is down today after throwing almost 30 pitches and also not looking particularly sharp yesterday. That's something I might have overheard in the clubhouse this morning that suggested he's probably not going today. Um, so <laughs> I, I feel like you're probably seeing Banks uh, to some degree if, if Kopech has fallen short of four or five innings. I'm glad you brought up Tanner Banks. Let's segue to a couple of really nice stories. One is Tanner Banks. Tell people about his moments after he found out that he made – the big league club as a 30-year-old, an 18th round pick from 2014. This is That's a big, big moment for him. Yeah, well, it sounds like there's a lot of tears. Uh, he, he, uh, he tried to basically play it cool and, and uh, call his wife and like he was going to joke to her that he got released. And I think <laughs> he made it about uh, one and a half seconds before the bit fell apart. Um, you know, cry, tearing up calling his agent, you know, tearing up calling friends and family. I mean, this is a guy obviously covering the rebuild. I, I've seen him start a lot. You know, he was always the kind of yeoman innings idiot that I was seeing pitch to Zach Collins, or you know, seeing while I was there to watch Eloy Menes. Uh, I've seen him pitch at every affiliate uh, pretty much, and he was always a guy who could control the zone and had lots of pitches. And you know, he seems like a guy like this is a guy who makes his living making minor league starts because he knows how to pitch. Then all of a sudden, we see him in spring training. He's throwing 94, not 89, 90 like I saw him before. He's and. True enough, I saw him out there today walking out with his core velocity belt, which is something you see basically every White Sox pitcher carrying nowadays. And he, you know, mostly we think of him in terms of command and uh, you know, the way stuff plays, but he, he saw a velo jump for it, and now he's a major leaguer. That's pretty awesome. A great story and good for Tanner Banks. And then the other one, I just, I just saw your tweet about this. I've always liked, um, gotten a good impression anyway, from Josh Harrison as a guy and as a ball player. And is it today that he hit 10 years of service? That's really cool. Tell people what 10 years of service means, by the way, for ball players. Well, for what it mainly means, uh, you know, it, it unlocks like a specific pension that you get that's uh, an extra financial benefit and security uh, for guys for basically the rest of their lives. So that's kind of why it became you know, this thing that you specifically target uh, as a career, something you get a beer shower for uh, maybe, but it also just, it's more symbolically just meaning that you stuck around, you hung around the game, you, you know, for uh, a major leaguer, it means you reached free agency and you probably got one or two extra contracts on top of that. And especially for Josh Harrison, you know, something he said when I talked to him this morning is that, uh, you know, he's got injured basically every year from 2015, 2019, he tore his hamstring in 2019 you know, he's at a point where he's like after the wrong side of 30 and he's coming off a major injury. He had to accept the minor league deal last year, but he still worked his way back uh, or 2020 accept the minor league deal, but he, he still worked his way back and made himself enough of a, uh, a figure and established what he could do again to, you know, get signed for a guaranteed contract for a team that's trying to contend. So it's a, it's a big accomplishment for everybody, but also a real show of resilience from him. It's really cool. And um, I like his fit in this lineup in terms of the contact bat and obviously as a personality and with his energy, he's a good fit. I also like the A.J. Pollock fit a lot. 
Um, thought he should have been in left to end that game with Adam Engel in right, but that's neither here nor there. We'll see if those lessons get learned as, as we go along. How's A.J. Pollock after the hamstring grab yesterday in the cold weather? That was scary. I mean, you see a guy go down with a hamstring, you – I, I certainly initially assumed, especially how quickly he came out, that it was going to be an ICL stint. And, you know, that remains to be seen how cautious they play it. But he was really trying to downplay it yesterday. Uh, you know, his history is that he had hamstring strains in both legs last year on top of some of the injury struggles he's had in his career. But he was saying that that really informed him of, you know, how to handle this. He said that, it, you know, the way it kind of grabbed him uh, yesterday, earlier in his career, if he had an experience what he experienced last year, that he probably would have tried it out and he saw something small. But he could tell it was the precursor uh, to something bigger, and that's why he came out of the game so quickly. It's just because he had that experience with it. So I would still not be surprised if he just, you know, spends 10 days on it, especially since, you know, he's already kind of headed out on paternity leave that kind of forces him to take at least four days off. Um, obviously, the optimism is that he would come back from that feeling strong, especially the way he's hit since he came out. But um, I think the approach you know, be it with Giolito or be it with anything else uh, with this team, is that they're going to be around. They don't need a hot – like, obviously, they want a hot start, but they don't necessarily need it. They're, you know, 500 at the end of April. It's not going to be, you know, doom and gloom for this team. They want to make sure they don't aggravate anything to make a multi-week, multi-month outing. So that's why I still would not be surprised to see him hit the IL, but he was trying to downplay it yesterday. That makes all the sense in the world. Um, so we'll see what happens. A guy who's played, I think, a max of 117 games over the last five years. So it's not, it's, um, it, it's not a dude you expect to be injury-free during the course of the year. Um, Jake Berger is here. He'll take some at bats and people will move around. You're listening to Hit and Run on 670 The Score. Matt Spiegel, your host. James Fegan from The Athletic is with us. You mentioned Giolito. Scary to see him leave with the abdominal um, injury and he's going to miss a couple starts. The, the, the temptation, James, is to connect the physicality of his good mass, as he called it, that he added below the belt with the abdominal strain. Is that unfair to connect those things as a pitcher tries to work with his new body? I don't know if it's unfair, but at this point for me, it's purely speculative until he kind of figures out, you know, if this is going to be a consistent thing or if this is kind of a fluke thing doesn't crop up. Um, it kind of really remains to be seen. I would, you know, I would say that's part of the reason he's so kind of, you know, ticked off about it is that he did put so much work into what he did and he did feel like he had put himself into such a physically good space. You know, I had an interview with him where he ran off like four or five trainers that he all wanted to give credit for how, how they helped him to build strength and how he was going to be so much more consistent this year. So I think if it's, you know, backfires, that's maybe something that's revealed over the course of the year, but he still probably is still in a position of being very confident that this is going to have him, you know, sitting with his best stuff at the end of September and then into October, which was really maybe the downfall of last year's team of just, how much that great rotation to kind of worn down over the course of the year, and you know, cause this reaction from Lucas to want to bulk up and strengthen it to, to be strong for a seven month season. I, um, I, I angered White Sox fans. Um, I didn't anger them. I should say maybe they're just always angry and it wasn't about me. Is that possible? I, I don't know. I try to kind of remove myself from like why they're angry. Like it's going to happen. It, you, you don't need to carry it home with it and <laughs> how you view yourself about it. That's a, that's a really good bit of advice. Don't take it personally. You know, it's a really good bit of advice. Um, yeah, right. 
Car- Carlos Rodon struck out 12 in five innings yesterday. His 89th and final pitch was at 98.1 miles per hour, James. Um, so, you know, good for him, whatever. Uh, I did see Sean Manaya throw seven no-hit innings as well for the San Diego Padres. Frankie Montas, not as good, gave up, uh, was it five runs in five innings? In his first start with Oakland, report just came out earlier that Andrew Vaughn was the cost, or at least there's a report that the A's wanted Andrew Vaughn. Do you think those talks are alive? And would would Rick Hahn consider, I don't know, Yelky Cespedes and another prospect or two in a package for two years of Frankie Montas? Yelky as opposed to Andrew Vaughn? Yes. Yes. Well, I guess because I come from I come to that perspective because I wouldn't give up Andrew Vaughn with where you are right now right. and what you I, need I to do. Agree with that. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think he totally would. I, I think it Oakland be the one that you're trying to get <laughs> on with that. I mean, Yelsey looked great in spring. Obviously, is a very toolsy package, but um, it kind of remains to be seen how that approach really works at the upper levels. And I don't think he's someone you can necessarily consider right now. As this is part of the plan that we definitely you're still finding out what he is. Andrew Vaughn, that's part of your window. That's part of being a competitive team for five, six years plus the way you envision. The more you start kicking away from that, uh, you know, obviously there's calculus that goes into how much you thought Madrigal was going to be healthy and how much you immediately thought Kimbrough was going to help. But the more you start kicking away, you know, your top five picks, your guys, you were part of the five, six year window to really um, buttress up to, you know, the immediate contending run that's going to have an effect in kind of shrinking how long you're really going to be able to do this. And I understand like you need to upgrade all the time. You know, every season is a, a fight with you know, some of the Titans of the game, like the Dodgers, you need to make short-term upgrades a lot, but you really want to be careful about how much you're, you're picking away from, you know, what really is going to make you good for a long period of time. And I don't think Yolke yet is at a place where you can say that he's going to be for sure a part of that. Maybe he will, but I think you'd have to be willing to move him. Um, it'd be more about do the A's see enough of what he's done against higher level pitching to be enticed by that. And I'd be surprised if they did. Um, but, you know, maybe we get to a point in the middle of the season where you're talking about, you know, Oscar Colas really being enticed from the other guys. You know, it'd be painful to do that, but, you know, maybe that's more the really level of talent that's really going to bring in somebody impact if he's still in the game and in high A and double A. Do, do you have any sense whether that would anger um, people who are involved in the White Sox Cuban pipeline for ball players, if they or you know their, their Latin American system, how well they're doing signing those guys, would it anger them if you traded one of them away this early? I mean, I've talked to you know Marco Patti about how they traded Tatis, and you know, frankly, he gets it. You know, he knows that like that's uh, you know a likely outcome for a lot of times when you're bringing in prospects, especially high end ones, and especially during the time you're contending, is that they could be used for trade capital. And part of it is that's your job. You're supposed to bring in talent to the organization. You're not dictating about where it ends up. So if you sign a big guy and it, it, it lands to you, your team bringing in a big-time starting pitcher and winning World Series, you did your job. It's not a, you, The measure of you doing your job is not him playing 10 years in a White Sox uniform. It's him bringing value to the organization. So I, I think they get it, even if it would be ultimately disappointing to not have this continuation of a, you know, a very proud Cuban legacy. Um, White Sox lineup is out, by the way. Tim Anderson at the top of the lineup. He's he's good. And um, I see Josh Harrison batting six behind Andrew Vaughn, Adam Engel in right field. Reese McGuire, come on down. What are people going to get when they watch Reese McGuire play catcher for the White Sox today, James? Um, just smooth defense. Uh, you know, someone who's framed really well and, you know, has a decent history of throwing out runners, even if that's something that's more dependent on, you know, uh, pitch delivery, which is something – you know, Kopech probably didn't have the greatest numbers as far as um, 
thwarting off uh, stolen bases last year. But it's you wanted from the backup catcher role, especially when you have Yasmani Grandal, just someone who can come in and run a pitching game plan and, you know, keep the ship afloat, not not do anything to kind of unsettle things. If you get a little offense out of backup catcher, which, you know, they weren't really able to with more offensive base prospects uh, last year, that's great, but that's not the whole point. He's someone who can just, he can, he can keep things afloat. He can run a game plan and not mess things up for you too bad. James, I'm going to uh, do a thing this year where I ask every one of my guests, not every time they come on, but certainly the first time, um, these three questions for your baseball bona fides. You ready? Here you go. All right. Um, who is one of your most favorite players, past or present, and why, James Fegan? Well, I think – you go through a wave, well, in the 90s, like uh, Washington Juan Gonzalez, who won the MVPs, and then you go through kind of your, your sabermetric awakening, and you kind of, like, second-guess that and be like, why did he win these MVPs based on RBIs? You know, he wasn't, like, the best on-base guy. He wasn't a great defender. But now I'm in, like, this reaction to the awakening where, you know, you want to appreciate guys, especially, like, watching, like, guys like Jose Abreu or Ole Menace. There are these guys out here who – are not going to have like the statistically most efficient approach, but you, you appreciate what made them work, how being aggressive, like put them in the mindset to kind of do damage consistently. And I, I think it makes me look back on just how much I feared uh, Juan Gonzalez growing up <laughs> as a young White Sox fan. And I'm really like, we should appreciate that guy. He was a dude, even if there were flaws and he wasn't the perfect, you know, baseball player ever to, you know, pick up 10 war or anything like that. He was, he was somebody who was really dangerous consistently for a long time. And I thought he was really cool. That's that. That's awesome. And I love the, uh, the, the reaction to the sabermetric awakening. Um, I saw them at lounge Jacks, by the way, they were very good. Sabermetric awakening. Very sad. <laughs> what is the best game James you've ever had a chance to see in person? Uh, I mean, so game three of the playoffs is really awesome, but I, since you mentioned me about that, I, I looked this up because it was a game I attended when I was six years old. Was, I think it was September 24th, 1993. Um, it was it was a game that was very much of its time. It was uh, you know Kevin Brown gave up four runs to the White Sox in the first inning, and as starting pitches were allowed to do back then, he settled in and he pitched eight innings. And the White Sox are holding on to this lead, uh, you know can't score any more about it against them. And they give the ball to Roberto Hernandez four two in the ninth, and he gets two quick outs, and he gives us a single and a game tying home run. And the, the White Sox started a rally in the bottom of the ninth uh, by Lance Johnson bunning himself on and then getting bunted over. And they brought in with two outs, Warren Newsom to pinch it. And, you know, singles can kind of look like little small things on TV, but sitting in the little uh, seats on the side box that I, I had on the, on the first base line that my mother used to get from her job at Michael Reese Hospital, uh, <laughs> you can really see just the, the plane of this beautiful, like, line drive just flying across the night. And just like how much it was absolutely ripped, and you gain an appreciation for just how hard the ball is hit, just watching in person. And that's a memory I have from my childhood, just watching that game-winning single just fly through the air and being like, "Man, that thing was crushed," even though it's just you know a garden variety single to center. <laughs> uh, that's beautiful. That's beautiful. And then, what is one thing you would change if you were commissioner? Um, generally, I want things to stop changing. I <laughs> have the philosophy of Paul Canerco of the game is always right. And that, you know, as much as like the changes we go through, the cycles we go through where we're seeing too many home runs or strikeouts are annoying, yeah. that there's always going to be a counter adjustment that we're always going to see things, uh, you know, go in waves, even if, uh, you know, the valleys of them are not too enjoyable. But, you know, talking to players, uh, I think just developing the, the tacky ball that kind of 
gives guys a consistent grip to, to get away from, uh, you know, everything they've turned to that's kind of altered the game in very radical ways. I think it's something that, you know, I, I would be happy to see because I like covering pitching. I have not liked covering the, you know, the whole sticky stuff uh, phenomenon. It's, it's, it's not been super enjoyable. Ah, love it. Uh, good stuff, James Fegan. Now you don't have to answer those ever again, you know, on this show. Uh, so congratulations on that. Well, I enjoyed it. No, I, I wish I could think of more Juan Gonzalez-like dangerous dudes from the 90s. Oh, oh. See, now that's what I'll do for the next 20 minutes. Thank you so much, James. Appreciate it. Have a great day. All right. Thanks for having me. Got it. It's James Fegan. Dangerous dudes from the 90s is your category. Feel free to text him in at 312-644-6767. White Sox coverage in depth right there on Hit and Run. Top of the hour, Jordan Bastian from MLB.com will join us, and we'll ask him those same questions at the end of some Cubs conversation. When we come back, though, I mentioned it earlier, and I talked about it earlier. Let's hear from Theo Epstein about rule changes. He was on Starkville, or the Athletics Baseball Podcast with Jason Stark and Doug Glanville. Talked about that. We'll play that next and discuss with you on Hit and Run on 670 The Score. This is Sports Radio 670 The Score, Chicago's sports station. A little pop fly, shallow center, racing in Taylor. That's going to be a base hit. Here comes Ian Happ to score. Cubs lead 4-0. Schwindel stopping at second. Seiya Suzuki delivers again. A little looper into shallow center that Taylor could not catch. And the little Texas leaguer makes it four to nothing, Cubs. I definitely told him it's just about getting ready, uh, not trying to prove anything to anybody. Uh, You're a piece here and a big piece for a long time, so let's do things the right way. He understands that. Uh, I've communicated that probably almost too much, and um, he's done a nice job of um, asking for more if he wants it. And... um, you know, we, he, he's getting his work in. David Ross from spring training talking about Seiya Suzuki. And you heard Pat Hughes describing the Texas leaguer. That's not who Seiya Suzuki is. That's what he hit where you pop that into the outfield. Seiya Suzuki for a base hit. So right there, the bump back, the dirty work by Steely Dan. Is that because you saw me tweet earlier in response to Jason Benetti about early Merck, Sean? No, I just thought I was like, all right, he's working hard. Got his first head. I'll throw that in there. I just like Steely Dan. So so do I. Bring it. Bring it as much as you want. Earlier, um, Jason Benetti saw an early tweet from Scott Merkin of MLB.com who covers the White Sox and set out, um, I read your tweet so early Merck. Oh, yeah, did Benetti <laughs> wrote that out. I missed that, but I appreciate that so much. Right? So do I. And I immediately tweeted back to Benetti saying, I love the chorus harmonies on early Merck. It's, they're just so good, those chorus harmonies on early Merck. The rare Steely Dan hit that Donald Fagan didn't sing. It was some studio guy whose name escapes me at the beginning of Steely Dan. It wasn't Fagan. He wasn't confident enough to sing everything just yet. But, boy, I love that track. Um, Spiegel with you here on Hit and Run on Sunday mornings. Seiya Suzuki's been great in the towards the end of spring training in so many different ways, and you've got a pretty good look at him so far here in the first couple games. Haven't seen the power yet, but you've seen the contact. Sack fly for an RBI, RBI single right there. Uh, had a chance to do some games in Arizona. Did I tell you guys I was out in Arizona doing some games? Did, did I bring that up? I wasn't sure about that. Um, but anyway, saw Suzuki. He's so smooth in the outfield. 
man. Even if you haven't seen it yet, trust me, he's a really good all-around ball player. Remember, he once won a batting title in Japan by hitting 335. He once stole 25 bases in a season in Japan. He's, he's a very, very good all-around player. Has an absolute gun for an arm in right field and moves very smoothly out there. So a big part of the Cubs' future and obviously the present as well. Earlier in the show, uh, a caller brought up the shift. And I gave my treatise on why I'm for banning the shift overall. And if you missed it, just the general shortness of it, salute, is that I believe in the aesthetics of the game mattering and the satisfaction for a player and for a fan that if you see somebody do the incredibly difficult task of hitting a baseball and they absolutely drill it on the barrel and hit it with full power into what would be short right center, Maybe it'll go into the gap for a double. That ought to be rewarded. You know how hard it is to hit a baseball? It's ridiculously difficult. And I don't want that ball being caught by the third baseman in the shift playing as a fourth outfielder. That's not good for the aesthetics of the game. It is not good for the satisfaction of the game. And it has led to relentlessly hitters becoming three true outcome guys where they're just trying to hit that ball high in the air and hit it above the shift and into the stands. And if they don't do that, they strike out. So what? That's okay. And if they walk, that's great. And I love walks. I don't like strikeouts, but I I understand the math all makes sense. As long as the math makes sense to support players like that, like bad three true outcome guys, as they're trying to figure out whether they can be decent contact hitters as well, as long as that math makes sense, front offices will keep putting people out there, keep putting ball players out there. So we need to make that math make sense less. So that's why the pitch clock is coming, and that will decrease velocity and increase the pace. That's great. That's why some people believe in moving the mound back to deal with the velocity, and I understand that. I'm open to that theoretically, but I'm very much for the pitch clock, and I am for banning the shift. Here's Theo Epstein, whose job right now in the commissioner's office is essentially visionary. That's the way Jason Stark wrote it when he wrote up this interview for The Athletic. His job is visionary. What should we do, Theo, to make the game better and help grow the game? And he had lots and lots of thoughts. Terrific interview. Good write-up in the article as well. But here are his thoughts on the podcast on banning the shift. One argument that I think doesn't get enough attention in favor of um, shift restrictions, and that is what it does for the infielders themselves. Like we talk all the time about what it means for hitters, what it means for certain types of hitters, the incentives we're going to create, are we, are we making life too easy for the pull hitters? And, you know, or, or we're talking sort of theoretically, shouldn't it, shouldn't the, the defense have the ability to position themselves wherever they want? And those are the types of arguments you get on both sides, but very rarely do we talk about the fact that what we saw last year, the shift restriction is great. If you love athletic, dramatic infield defense, you know, the, the best infielders in the world, having room to roam instead of being bunched up and make, and having to make do or die plays at the end of their range. When you have shift restrictions and you have to have two fielders on either side of second base, now all of a sudden the fielders are spread out. Second base becomes an extremely important defensive position and range is at a premium. Athleticism is at a premium. The ability to make plays at the end of your range where you're diving or sliding and, you know, 
sliding backhand play and pop up or leave your feet and make that, that dive and play in the hole that, that becomes extremely important. So the feedback we got from fans and importantly from infielders was that they really liked the shift restrictions because it brought back athletic, um, rangy middle infielders who, who were diving all over the field. And if, you know, the, the fielders themselves felt freed up, they told us like, we love this because we feel like we can show off our range. We feel like we, you know, we have to make plays now. We have to go get balls. We're in the past. We just listened to the manager and just sat there and let the ball come to us. So I think, yes, there are arguments to make about, you know, philosophically about whether defense should have, you know, the ability to strategize and position themselves wherever they want. But, but don't forget about what it means for, you know, the action that comes with great defensive infielders. And, and ultimately it's, it's really putting the game back in the hands of, of the players. So that's Theo Epstein on why banning the shift would not only benefit hitters. That'd be nice to see the best infielders in the world having the room to Rome, when you think of the great infield highlights that we often see, it's specific infielders out on an island trying to do their thing. So you have all those infielders close, and it's not as uh, necessary. You've got this big, wide-open, gaping gap on either the left side or the right side, or sometimes up the middle. So, yeah, no, I, I like that idea to go along with the other things that we're talking about. It's interesting because there are so many levels of this. Um, Theo also talked about this other discussion that's out there where outfielders would be required to play shallower than they set up today. Outfielders would be required to play shallow. And I don't, I don't know if I like that. I understand the thought process. It's about bringing back extra base hits. I guess I'm glad all these things are getting discussed. My immediate reaction to that is not to like it. Like, if you're an outfielder who can play shallow and you're good at going back on the ball, go for it. Some of the best ever have done that. Um, you know, uh, some of the best ever have done that. But if if you are not and you need to play a little deeper and try to restrict the singles, then that's okay too. Just a side note here as a kind of segue back and forth between the Cubs and the the rules stuff. Have you guys noticed where Jason Hayward is playing center field a lot of times? Ron Coomer's commenting on a lot. Right center, kind of shallow in right center is a, oftentimes where Jason Hayward is playing. And I don't know if he's spoken about that yet. If he has, I've missed it. It's really fascinating to me because what it does is creates an opportunity. We've, it creates an opportunity for him to play more fly balls in kind of a similar fashion to the way he would when he is a right fielder. Apparently we have David Ross talking about it. Let's give that a listen. Yeah, Jay Hay is important in so many aspects of, of the one, his leadership and, and his experience for sure. And um, we've already uh, we've talked mid-game just about making sure he's spacing-wise for Saya is, is he's helping him out. He knows that spot as good as anybody. Um, so uh, they're communicating out there. He's doing a really nice job of kind of being the captain of that outfield. So that's Ross on Hayward kind of captaining the outfield, and I've seen a lot of that and heard a lot of that and him talking about it, which has been very good. And maybe, maybe that's part of why he's playing there towards Saya. Uh, next time I have an opportunity, I'll ask Jason about it. But it sure looks like a guy who's trying to make center field feel a bit more like right field. You know what I mean? And one of, um, one of the great conversations that we were able to have 
couple springs ago in Mesa was with Jason Hayward, and I asked him whether he liked center, whether he liked right, and obviously he likes right better. And I said, why do you like right field? And he said, I remember him talking about it very specifically. He said, I just feel like everything's in front of me there. I got the wall right here on my left, and then I've got the whole rest of the field, and I just I know exactly how to attack the entire field that way. So knowing that that's his mindset makes me think that's what he's trying to accomplish by playing in that spot sometimes in center field. Let's talk to Mike in Homer Glenn, who wants to reference some of the rules and some of the possible changes in baseball. Mike, good morning. You're on Hit and Run on The Score. This is Sports Radio 670 The Score, Chicago's sports station. And a high fly ball to right field. Piscotti's going back, and it is gone! What a way to start for Kyle Schwarber, a leadoff home run! And the Phillies take a 1-0 lead. Well, he hammers that one high and deep, and that one is way out of here. You think these two teams like to swing the bat? Just a little bit. Anthony Rizzo crushing one. Those were first at-bat home runs in this 2022 season for Anthony Rizzo of the Yankees and Kyle Schwarber of the Philadelphia Phillies. Right now, Anthony Rizzo among the leaders in home runs in MLB with two. He's one of four people with two. Giancarlo Stanton, his teammate, has two. Alex Bregman uh, of the Astros and his teammate, Kyle Tucker of the Astros, each have two. Uh, Stanton and Rizzo on pace for 162 uh, home runs and games. I mean, but the Cubs offense is fixed. They don't even. Right? Yeah. Yeah. You got Frank the Tank, baby. Yeah. (laughs) You know, look, (laughs) this Cubs contact offense has been an absolute thing of beauty frankly these first two days we talked a bunch about it towards the top of the show and we'll do a little more about it in the noon hour jordan bastion from mlb.com will join us at 12 then we got a bonus segment of spiegel and hit and run after that uh headed up towards pregame with zach zaidman before pat and ron have your call for this afternoon's final game against milwaukee freddie peralta against marcus stroman the stro show debuts today at wrigley field Good for Kyle Schwarber, um, who I think is going to have an absolute beast of a season for the Philadelphia Phillies. Let's take some phone calls here. This is Mike in Homer Glen. I teased you, Mike. Thought I was going to go to you before the break, but then we went to break, and now here we are. So, Mike, thank you for your patience. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you doing, Matt? Very good. Thank you. Good. Um, I just want to talk about the, uh, you know, something that could – save quite a bit of time um, as far as length of games. It doesn't happen that often, but when it does, it just really irks me. And that's when there's, like, uh, McCutcheon gets hit by a pitch, the bench is clear, the bullpen's clear, everybody comes in, stands around, and nothing really happens. But if they – I don't understand why MLB does not, uh, you know, make that absolute where you can't leave the bench or the bullpen. It's, uh, it's an interesting point, like in the NBA, where it's an automatic one-game suspension if a player leaves the bench area to do that kind of thing. I, I guess that's conceivable. I think those situations are so few and far between, though. It doesn't really do much for pace of play on the regular because you're talking about, what, once a week, maybe twice if a week? Even, if even. If even, you get that situation. So I hear what you're saying. That's a frustrating moment for Mike and Homer Glenn as he's watching the game. Like, what are these guys doing? Nobody's doing anything. 
You're coming out. Oh, look at me. I'm standing here. Had the opportunity uh, earlier in the week to watch with uh, my producers from the Parkins and Spiegel show with Danny Parkins, of course. And we're on your radio Monday through Friday, 2 to 6, to watch the Reds and the Cardinals in a big fight. God, was it 2012, I think? Because Johnny Cueto, the newest member of the White Sox, and Tony La Russa used to not really like each other. Now, that was a moment when the benches cleared and they did more than just standing around. That was a moment back in 2012. It was after Yadier Molina and Brandon Phillips got into it right at the beginning of a game based on something that had happened the day before. And then Dusty and La Russa were yelling at each other. The benches cleared. The bullpens came out. And a fight broke out. And Johnny Cueto was kicking everybody he could with his cleats. You remember this? He was leaning back against the netting behind home plate towards the first base side, just cleating anybody in his path. What the hell, man? Scary. Sure, Tony didn't like Johnny Cueto at the time, but I'm sure now Tony, La Russa, and Johnny Cueto will get along famously uh, as they are um, going to be White Sox bedfellows. Let's go to Mike in Carpenter, I believe, who wants to talk about Andrew McCutcheon getting hit and his response to it after Keegan Thompson hit him. We talked about that quite a bit in the 10 o'clock hour. Good morning, Mike. How are you? Hey, good morning, guys. Thanks for taking my call. I find it amusing, all this talk back and forth. Did it, did, were they intentionally hitting him? Were they not? If you looked at the replays on both the pitch that just missed him and the pitch that did hit him, something that I observed was Contreras' glove never moved out of the strike zone. So, frankly, if you want to argue and, and you want to tell Major League Baseball, hey, we weren't trying to hit him, you know, at least tell Contreras to try and sell it a little better and save his pitches. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, seriously. Frankly, it's a good thing the home plate umpire wasn't stationed behind um, the inside corner. He might have got plunked. <laughs> it's it's so ridiculous to watch the theatrics when they're trying to sell it like that, isn't it, Mike? It's, it's... Exactly. He's working on some stuff. What's he working on? I mean, just drill him. I mean, if you're that good, I mean, come on. Why did it have to take you two tries to hit him? Yeah. You know, this is a Diamond Cup fan talking to. I mean, I, I just found the whole thing amusing. Absolutely, he intentionally tried him. They were both on the same page. Yeah. But they weren't. Why was he moving his glove? That's that's really funny. Thank you, Mike, for pointing that out. And then Contreras with the smile on his face immediately after as he stands in front of McCutcheon like, you got to get through me if you want to go after Keegan. I'll tell you what Keegan Thompson was working on. He was working on his um, hit-by-pitch skills that he wants to look unintentional so he minimizes his suspension. That's what he was working on. Oh, he was working on stuff. Not the cut fastball. He was working on how do I hit a guy where it looks like I wasn't really trying to hit the guy so I only get suspended for a couple of games and still stand by my teammates and do the right thing. That's what he was working on. And maybe he did it effectively. I know. I know. That's right. This is Joe in Benton Harbor on 670 The Score. Joe, you're on Hit and Run. Good morning. How are you? Good morning, Speaks. Thanks so much for putting me on. I was sharing with your guys uh, – if you want to beat the shift, there's a simple way to do it. It's not as complex as people make it seem. Okay. Hit the other way. Okay, Joe, Joe, from the- Joe, Joe. Yeah. Yeah. I want to have a conversation with you, but you're saying it's not as complex. Do you have any idea how hard it is to do that? Like the best in the world do it. Not everybody is Tony Gwynn or Wade Boggs, man. They're not. It's so, you. it's so, not everybody's Jose Ramirez who does that whenever he wants. That guy Hits against the ship whenever he wants. He'll go the other way for a single. 
Um, it, or he might try to, to hit one out to right. But it's so hard, Joe. You want them to aim. Yeah, I, listen, I'm with you, but the greatest hitters in Major League Baseball, you couldn't put a shift on them because they beat the shift. If you teach kids, uh, high school kids now, to hit away from a shift instead yes. of hitting into it or uh-huh. try to power it over it, yeah. then you build this thing. Uh, let me let me give you one more story. No, no, no. Hold I'll on. Hold on. Let me respond yeah. to that, Joe. I'm not going to cut you off. but let me. I mean, I am going to cut you off, but I'm not going to hang up on you. Let me respond to that. The, yes, you're right. You could teach it. The problem is right now at the big league level, they're rewarding being a bad three true outcome guy. Joey Gallo is going to make tens and tens of millions. We watched Adam Dunn towards the end of his career. Like those guys are getting rewarded. So they're not going to learn. We just lived through watching people refuse to learn on the Cubs because it it's not it's not incentivized financially and as a career. So you have to do multiple things to try and change the fabric of the game. And this is one of them, aside from the other ancillary benefits like Theo talked about. But go ahead. What's your other story? Well, listen, I, I, I'm, not, I'm not against you on that. I just, I, what, I, what I crave is the, is the uh, short uh, uh, second baseman, the 5'8 second baseman who can hit the opposite way and drives everybody crazy by slapping it down both lines. I miss those days. I miss those guys. But anyway, the story is uh, Leo DeRocher, uh, after uh, uh, Kessinger's Rookie of the Year first season, came up to Kessinger and said, next year you're a switch hitter. And Kessinger said, what? He said, next year you're a switch hitter. You go learn how to switch hit. And Kessinger spent the winter learning how to switch hit and became the greatest switch hitter in Cubs history. So I don't want to let go of that. Speaks, you're the best. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, Joe. Appreciate it and love the passion. Um, yeah, go ahead. Just learn to be a switch hitter. This is why you're the way you are, Joe. Because Kessinger learned to be a switch hitter in an off season. You think everybody can just hit against the shift. I used to think that too. Just hit the other way. Look, it's beautiful. I want guys to do it. I really do. And the ones that can... Ken, but I've learned a lot these last five years in watching what the Cubs were trying to do, which was make everybody a power hitter for two strikes and a contact hitter for the third strike. And not only could it not be done by some very good athletes, it messed a whole bunch of people up in the head. Like Kyle Schwarber when he was hitting leadoff. Just messed a whole bunch of people up. This is Mike on the south side on Hit and Run. You're the final caller that I say good morning to at 11.53. Hello, Mike. Hi, Matt. How you doing? Boy, isn't it when I listen to Anthony Rizzo hitting a home run and we listen to Kyle hitting a home run, it's kind of disheartening. These old Cubs hitting home runs. <laughs> So it's kind of it's kind of disheartening. <laughs> don't don't let don't but, let it be, Joe. It was time for the era to change and change it. Did. Yeah, but but you, you know it's interesting. But our great hitters, and maybe you just answered my question. Our great hitters, uh, Kyle and Anthony and uh, uh, Bias, they weren't hitting for us before we made the people say, "Well, we got rid of, we sold the store, we got rid of uh, all our great players." But they weren't Matt, They weren't hitting for us anymore. They weren't hitting. No, no, they were not. Um, Mike, uh, it's a crazy truth that the Cubs offense was better after the deadline than it was before the deadline last year. Think about that. That's nuts. That's true, though. The numbers were better. 
it just it just wasn't working anymore. They cycled through all those hitting coaches, and the players were empowered to kind of do what they wanted, and and some of them were very very good, and some of them were not. But for whatever reason, it just it, it often wasn't happening. Now it, it, that's not true across the board. Chris Bryant figured some things out with his dad, his hitting coach before last season and had a very good start to the year and a good finish to the year in San Francisco. And the man got paid to be in purple in Colorado. Uh, But Rizzo did not. Um, Baez, for the most part, did not. We'll see what the rest of his career holds. Schwarber's the one that they couldn't figure out. And I regret the non-tender. As it stands right now, if you ask me which one of those guys would have been good to keep, and I don't know that Schwarber was ever my answer to that question, but he'd be my answer to that one right now. Isn't that crazy? Because the deal he ends up getting in Philly is actually fairly manageable. It's not the giant Bryant deal. It's not the big Baez deal. He can play the outfield. He's learned to play first base, and he could obviously DH for you, and he's got it figured out. And to tell you what, his work habits and his work ethic, just top of the line character-wise. Absolute top of the line, as they love in in Philadelphia. You want to know who's excited to be back with Kyle Schwarber? Nick Castellanos. Castellanos is thrilled to be a teammate again of Kyle Schwarber in Philadelphia. Matt Spiegel is me. You are you. This is Hit and Run, Sunday mornings, 9 to 12. Bonus 45 minutes coming up as we take you to Cubs pregame and Zach Zaidman. So me, Matt Spiegel, and him, Sean Sears, will be your uh, baseball people for the next 45 minutes. Jordan Bastion from MLB.com going to join us in a few minutes to talk about the Cubs and their hot start on 670 The Score. Tune in is the audio platform with something for everyone. News. In order to secure convictions in a court of law, it is essential that we conclusively. Sports. That clock at four. Donchich. The step back three. You bet. Music. You said my word. Podcasts. Whatever you love, hear it right here on TuneIn. Go to tunein.com or download the TuneIn app to start listening. We really need new phones. T Mobile will cover the cost of four amazing new iPhone 15s, and each line is only $25 a month. New iPhone 15s? It's better over here. Only at T Mobile get four iPhone 15s on us and four lines for $25 per line per month with eligible trade in when you switch. Minimum of four lines for $25 per line per month with auto-pay discount using debit or bank account. $5 more per line without auto-pay, plus taxes and fees. Phone fee at 24 monthly bill credits for well-qualified customers. Contact us before canceling accounts to continue bill credits or credit stop and balance on required finance agreement due. $35 per line connection charge applies. Ctmobile.com. 